it's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Niilo lähti ajamaan takaa valkoista villipeuraa. Toisimme hänet pahasta turusta. Tällaisessa tuntussa. Se voi olla mitään muuta kuin valkoinen voimapeura. On sitä tekevästä taikauskoa. Eihän peura sillä tavalla voi miestä Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Miss Kat Allinger. Hello. Also back in the booth is El Goro. Hello. How's it going? This week, we are looking at the Finnish folk horror film, The White Reindeer, directed by Eric Blomborg. The film was released in 1952 and is the story of Perita, played by the film's co-writer, Mirjami Kosmanen. She's a newlywed who misses her husband. When she goes to a shaman to have him craft a love potion for her, she accidentally screws up the procedure and she's turned into the dreaded were-reindeer. It's lycanthropy in Lapland here, folks. We're going to spoil the film, so if you haven't seen White Reindeer, go ahead and check out the movie. We will still be here when you get back. So, El Goro, when was the first time you saw this film, and what did you think? I actually saw it last year, and I became aware of it, I think about the year before, due to the very excellent documentary that at least one of the people on this was actually in that documentary, so this will be fun. Woodland Stark and Days Bewitched from Kayla Janice. And if, of course, it was, for those that are unfamiliar, it was a rather exhaustive and wonderfully, wonderfully put together survey of folk horror throughout the world. And White Reindeer came up in that conversation. And I'm a big fan of this particular manifestation of horror. It certainly opened my eyes to a lot of the different forms it could take. So I was absolutely delighted with that doc. I was writing down titles throughout it. And then when it came time on my my show, Talk Without Rhythm, to put together my yearly list of 31 days of Halloween, where I find 31 horror films I've never seen, watch them, record daily podcasts, I put in White Reindeer because I love being exposed to different aspects of horror throughout the entire world. And I really, really enjoyed this. Not only 
was it a well put together horror film from this time period, but also it provided a rather interesting glimpse into a culture that I wasn't terribly familiar with. And there was, as I'm sure we'll get into this, the documentary feel of some of the sequences were just delightful. And it made me want to move to Lapland and hang out with reindeer. Kat, I'm so glad you deigned to come onto a podcast and talk about a movie where you had actually provided commentary for that movie before. I know not everybody does that. So thank you. Thank you so much for being a part of this. And when was the first time you saw this movie? I knew you were going to bring that up. I fucking knew it. Before we go on, his name isn't pronounced Blomberg. It's some weird, impronounceable thing. If you look it up in, in Finnish, and I don't want to repeat that because I can't even remember how to say it, but it's like Blomberg-y or something. I'll say Blomberg. I don't know. I don't know when I first saw this film. This is another one of my Cinemageddon adventures. Yeah, I'd been fan subbed for quite a few years before it eventually got to disc, where I know Eureka put it out here. That's when I did the commentary. There was another film from this year, Finnish horror film as well, from 52, called The Witch, or The Witch Comes Back, which is a really interesting film. Not really known for horror, though, are they, the Finnish? I think that's what attracted me to it, was this just how unique it seemed, like a Finnish horror. And I'm pretty sure this was the first as well. Not that they're a prolific subgenre, but, yeah, it caught my eye that way. And then it was one of these things that I'd started to build up this theory Folk horror wasn't just British because prior to that, there was like a hard call of English critics who would insist that folk horror was the trifecta, the Wicker Man, Blood on Satan's Claw and Witchfinder General. But over the years, I'd got really into a lot of my Czechoslovakian film and then here we have a Finnish horror I did a lot of stuff around Japanese horror and I started to realize this all constitutes folk horror one way or another. It's not gothic, although this one does have some elements of Western gothic put into it. But it's not gothic. It's based on folklore. And so I started to write about it just really because I had a bee in my bonnet and so contributed to everything being folk horror now, and for that I apologise. (laughs) Don't apologise. Was it me who mentioned it on the documentary? I think it was, actually, yeah. Oh, my God, I see, I don't even remember. I I haven't, I flicked past my seat. I can't (laughs) look at myself. But but, but picking up (laughs) on what you said, it's, that certainly was my whole lived experience. You know, I first came across the even the term folk horror in the re- in reference to Mark Gaddis's documentary of a history of horror. When, of course, he talked about that aforementioned trifecta of Blood on Satan's Claw, Witchfinder General and Wicker Man. But then seeing just the expansion of the scope and the work that you certainly did in that field to expand that scope has been amazing. I mean, not only did it, you know, redefine what this kind of genre could be. But also it provides an easy sort of entree for people to explore. You know, if somebody says, hey, I like folk horror, I like these sort of things. All right, let's see how that looks from this country. Let's see what looks in there. And it just sets them off on that journey, or at least it did so for me. So thank you. 
you're welcome. I, it just started to irritate me because I thought it is a really Anglophone, like Anglo-centric view that all horror must be gothic and therefore those three films, because they were slightly different, oh, this is new. But then you look at something like this from 1952 or you look at a lot of classic Japanese horror and even kabuki theatre before that and all the ghost story tradition there that was folk that was what was being identified as folk horror so I got annoyed about it that it was almost as if horror can only exist in the English speaking realm or, or western in the western canon and so I did go through a phase of trying to find as much as I could to because I was starting to brood on this <laughs> So this could have very well been one of the films that came out of that, but I really wanted to reinstate that, yeah, okay, a lot of commercial horror is Western. It is from a Western canon, but we aren't all it. It's not just us. There are other traditions. There are other ways of seeing things. I'm not an expert on Sami culture, but one of the things that did stand out to me in their spiritual system, it's not really a dogmatic religion, but it's very pagan and nature-based, is this similar belief in the world of the dead and the world of the living being on the same plane, very much like we see in Asia. So that really fascinates me because I think some really interesting quote-unquote horror comes out of that usually more emotional than the Western Gothic as well because it's slightly more ambiguous. I just find it really interesting. And that documentary is amazing because since then, a lot of people have gone out looking for these films. And I just think it's so brilliant to see people actually actively tracking them down. Certain companies have become more interested in them as well, like the Czech side and the weird aside. So I think it's really good. I think we've, we've, these films are finally becoming more known, although this one did was an international success. It played Cannes, did really well at Cannes. Yeah, it's just a wonderful film. And that's one thing I love about these movies from 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, not 10, but 30, 40, 50 years ago and more, is that they had such a long journey since there was no home video releases this movie came out in 52 but did it play con right away it was winning awards in 54 so it was still out there and traveling around it wasn't just it comes out for two weeks it disappears and that's one of the things I absolutely adore about the genre and also to this, the broader notion of film. You know, we've been doing I've been doing the show for a fair bit of time and there's always the reoccurring refrain not from cinema fans or the deep cinema fans, but other people when they're like, why are you going to ever run out of movies? Are you, is there everything that you want to? It's like, no, this is a medium that's been around for over a hundred years. There are so many people making so many films. And in terms of just the limited section that have been available to me by virtue of the fact that I only speak one language, there's so much out there to discover. And so you can come into a film like the white Ranger that for me came completely out of nowhere and still find something very interesting to engage with it. And just, again, that expansion of the view. Before we even get into the movie proper, I just want to say that this is one of the most beautiful films I have ever seen. Having your director be your cinematographer and having cinematography be one of his 
you know, big things that he was a cinematographer before he was a director. This movie looks fantastic. I just think that every shot has so much life and vitality to it. And just the framing of everything, the blacks versus the whites. And especially when you're out here filming in Lapland and have these could look like stark landscapes, but every single shot looks gorgeous. When I did the commentary, I compared it to things like Marquetta Lazarova, which I know we, we did an episode on. But just the way the director is able to bring alive this sense of magical realism. And he doesn't use these artificial sets. I do love really artificial films, but he doesn't use artificial sets. He doesn't he uses national dress or cultural dress. Everything's quite simple, but he's got this incredible sublime landscape which he's able to bring the magic out from that just awe-inspiring landscape and it's interesting when I researched him for my commentary it was almost impossible he made he directed five films and he basically set up this little production independent production company with, with a bunch of other directors so this was his first film but he'd been a bit of a Mario Bava but not as prolific so he'd been a cinematographer before that for a long time really hard to find anything that he made but he had a lot of experience in documentary which is interesting some of the reviews he picked up it was like a travelogue so there are scenes like the reindeer race at the beginning that do feel kind of documentary but then you get these moments where it turns into expressionism and you're just like, it floors you, absolutely floors you. And even the one little experimental shot where the reindeer goes into negative, you're like, oh my God, where did this come from? So you get a feel that he was really experimenting. He'd finally got his chance and it was self-funded, self-produced. He's the cinematographer, he's the writer, he's the director working with his wife, Kuz Manon, who she was very much a collaborator on this. So it wasn't just him. She came up with the story and was very much invested. And they worked together very closely for years. She died really young, though, I think 48 of an aneurysm, which is really sad. But I don't understand why he didn't go any. Like, he didn't appear to go anywhere after this. He makes this incredible film that shows so much flair and it's so much its own thing. It's not in any commercial tradition. It's playful. It's beautiful. And then he makes a few other films and just goes off to do documentaries. And this, this is criminal. <laughs> Fucking criminal that he, oh, decades later, it finally gets a Blu-ray release. People finally start to look at the film and go, wow. It's like, why that didn't happen at the time, I don't know. I think it's really unfair. And it's, it's a pretty universal story, even though it deals with reindeer. I mean, the idea of the wife who misses the husband and tries to get him back, but really the whole idea of the wife who is secretly something that she doesn't appear to be. I was not a Boy Scout, but I was a Cub Scout. And I remember sitting around a fire, like the only time I ever went camping with the Cub Scouts and sitting around a fire and hearing a ghost story around the campfire, which was very similar to this, this whole idea of, you know, this guy who's out hunting this wolf that is attacking the sheep and all this. And he ends up shooting the wolf and he comes home and he finds all this blood all over the place. And it was his wife who was actually the wolf. 
it's so similar to that and to other things. I was reading like a whole article about women as werewolves, and it's just fascinating to know that that has gone through so many cultures. It was actually focused on Estonian culture, which I know is fairly close to this as far as the, the geography, but I love that they're using this reindeer, and I love that it's the white reindeer, the rare reindeer that becomes this creature that she can transform into. I just think that's really super clever, especially because of the place of reindeer in Sami culture. It's just amazing. Can we just quickly talk about the Sami angle? Yeah, and I'm not any expert on this. So Sami people from very northern Europe are an indigenous people, not a large culture, but they occupied lands in Russia, in Finland, Norway, and Sweden. I find it really interesting that the director and also Kusmanen, when they wrote the script, focused partially on the Sami people. So you've got the shaman, who we can talk about, and the shaman drum. But then they've also mixed in, like you said, quite universal horror themes. So you've got the succubus character. There's vampirism in there. There's the werewolf, which wasn't really much of a part of Gothic literature. It became more of a thing in cinema. And it's always usually men <laughs> when it's cinema, outside of some exceptions. So it's interesting that they chose to use this because during this point and right up until the 70s, there were some pretty hardcore social, cultural policies in place, especially in Sweden and Norway and Finland. You had eugenics happening in Norway where they were forcibly sterilizing Sami women. They had this whole normalization program where they use Christianity to try and bring the Sami people into line with whatever culture and all the states are guilty of this there was a whole thing in the 1400s of witch trials the Sami people were caught up in that they were killed as witches and they really had to try hard to keep hold of their language their customs And now, obviously, today, they are recognized as indigenous people. They do have protections. I think they're the only culture who are legally allowed to reindeer now. It's seen as a a sacred thing to their culture, so it's protected by law. But it's fascinating that the director picks this subject. In Finland and places like that, they would call them Laplanders, which is apparently really insulting to a Sami person. So... They are mixing these things in, but the message is, there seems to be a genuine curiosity there, but the message is mixed. It's what are they actually saying about Sami people? It's it's really interesting that they would pick such a, I guess, a controversial subject. And you do get the iconography of the church in here as well. And you do get these more Western things. So I don't know, just, just wanted to note that, I think. I don't know enough about the culture to really talk about it critically. I just find it fascinating that this sort of outcast group of indigenous people, they decide this will be the focus, although none of the law actually seems to come from Sami culture. This idea of the shape-shifting reindeer and that, that seems to come from somewhere else. It's something more Western. Yeah, certainly in the presentation of the white reindeer as a malevolent force, you know, I was trying to find examples of it within 
the Sami folklore. And the closest I could find was the story of Miandash, which certain Sami people point to as sort of a ancestral forerunner to them, who was somebody who was had these reindeer characteristics, could assume the form of both man and reindeer. And it varies depend upon the tradition out of it. But some people saying, hey, we descended from him or he's a representative of a sort of older spiritual tradition. But in terms of it being in the negative sense, yeah, the, the reindeer didn't seem to occupy that sort of space. So it, it almost feels, as you were saying, that's sort of push-pull that Blomberry seems to be doing with this film. On one hand, a very sort of sympathetic and almost idyllic depiction of Sami life when we're introduced to the you know, the reindeer races and the happiness involved in that. And then that shift into the fear of the spiritual side. So we have this like, oh, look how nice this is. But then they also have that otherness to them, the the, sh- the shamanistic quality of them. So as you said, yeah, it's, it's, it's a weird sort of push-pull in this movie and their depiction of the Sami. I'm just glad that here in the United States, we've never oppressed a people and introduced uh, Catholicism or Christianity to them in order to control them or done any sort of, you know, eugenic type stuff on them. Really glad that we are above any of that stuff. Yeah. I'm British, so I'm staying quiet. No history at all with, with <laughs> no. England. No, 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 no. No, it does speak a little bit. One of the things I noticed, at least in the depiction of the reindeer woman in this, of kind of echoes of American indigenous people's beliefs. For example, the, in a lot of tribes throughout North America, there's the tradition of the deer woman. That, again, is this sort of figure that can have a vengeful side to her, but seems to be presented a little bit more in a positive light compared to this sort of wear reindeer, for lack of a better term. Though I will say it's an interesting choice in the utilizing the reindeer as a figure of horror. Certainly it has that cultural resonance within the Sami since so much of their culture is around the or circulates around the reindeer. I mean, it lends to their nomadic lifestyle and the herding of everything. But the reindeer is not a terribly intimidating animal. <laughs> it's a very cute animal. So there were certain sections where in the horror, I think, is somewhat undercut because they kind of look like a big dog when they're running through the snow. The horns intimidate me. Yeah, when they're in those big packs, I wouldn't want to get in there. I wouldn't want to get into this sort of throng. I think it does lean a lot more on the vampire, though, and this idea of ship- shape-shifting. Shape-shifting in cinema always fascinates me because you've got the male lycan- lycanthrope, but generally when women shift, it is into a reindeer or a moth or a butterfly. <laughs> I don't know why that is. I did interview Gavin Badley, my friend, who wrote the book on, on werewolf cinema for Fab Press, and asked him this, and he was talking about the animality of, of man and things like that, and maybe it's to do with that. But then you get later on, it's like Angela Carter doing Company of Wolves. There's a really good 70s film called The Werewolf Woman, which is nuts. And there are earlier ones. I didn't mention on my commentary cat people because I didn't want to be accused of giving spoilers, but there is a bit of that to it as well. And I don't know how far I should go into that, but I've been shouted at by forum men for <laughs> spoilers to other films. Before. As we all know, we can generally disregard a lot of forum guys. 
But this idea of somebody bought, like they're born into this innate, without saying too much about cat people, though most people have seen cat people by now, haven't they? I should hope so. You've got this woman who... That performance by Malcolm McDowell is, is one for the ages. Fucking dope. <laughs> Not to go off on a, on a tangent, but I saw that film again fairly recently after not seeing it since the 80s. And in my mind, I thought it was a great film. And I watched it again, I think maybe last year, and I thought, Jesus Christ, <laughs> fucking terrible. Yeah, but it had a banger of a David Bowie song on it. It did, but it's such a horrible, sleazy film. And speaking of the kind of the notion of the vampire and how that fits into perhaps, you know, the more seductive quality and perhaps informing why we have this woman as the reindeer, I was able to find certain references, again, within Sami folklore, talking about the notion of the white reindeer, which is a a rare thing that emerges amongst them, and the desirability of it. And in the broader sense, it's the idea that if you find a white reindeer in the wild, if you catch it, you're assured great wealth and great prosperity. So it's this it's this very desirable thing. And that, of course, fits into what we see the character of um, of Perita, how she goes about her ways and also what kind of informs it, because the sexual politics of this film are rather interesting and it, it feels as if it's punishment for sexual desire you know it's the yeah, notion that's all that... of horror isn't it very true <laughs> very true that's why i would love angela carter because she has that whole bestial thing all the way through her literature and it's all about women embracing the beast that's what the company of wars is about so what a lot of her short stories about is don't fear the beast be the beast in the case of the white reindeer though it's an accident or whether it's truly an accident or not, we don't know, because she goes to the shaman with his little drum, and it's the first living thing that she sees that she has to sacrifice. And it happens to be this rare reindeer. It's like she has this witch inside her, but the shape-shifting thing appears to come from the spell. And what if she'd seen... I don't know anything about Arctic Circle, a bear or a polar bear or a penguin. Would it have then she would have had to have possessed a penguin? I don't know. <laughs> Are penguins in the Arctic or just the Antarctic? I have no idea. Yeah, I believe they're in the Antarctic. Are they? I was thinking that one documentary about the depressed <laughs> penguin. Penguin that goes wandering off into the... <laughs> one of my favorite bits of in narration. <laughs> He would neither go towards the feeding grounds at the edge of the ice, nor return to the colony. Shortly afterwards, we saw him heading straight towards the mountains, some 70 kilometers away. Dr. Ainley explained that even if he caught him and brought him back to the colony, he would immediately head right back for the mountains. He's heading off into the interior of the vast continent. With 5,000 kilometers ahead of him, he's heading towards certain death. Hey, at one point, we've all been that penguin. 
I love that when she visits the shaman that, well, one, he's a complete drunk, but I love that he's just got the goat hanging out with him in his, his shack. At first, I thought she was going into a sauna because I know that saunas are a big part of like Finnish culture. And I, speaking of Finnish horror, the only other Finnish horror film I've ever seen was one called Sauna. And I believe that was from Finland, but it's definitely set in there. But yeah, he's just hanging out with this goat. So I was immediately thinking more of like western stuff with how the goat represents the sexuality and especially satan well they definitely put this in all over the place because one of the things that i was trying to figure out on my commentary was is this a vampire film is this a werewolf film what is it and it seems to be simultaneously both of those things and of course the vampire the female vampire is such a key part of gothic literature but that goes straight back to mythology and even religion you've got the vampires lilith it's this whole thing this fear of women's sexuality but that feels to me like such a western thing such a christian thing such a christian fear you generally don't see an awful lot of that in folk horror though it it usually takes on different forms or is more ambiguous especially that i'm thinking of the japanese ones where women turn into cats or possess spirits, but they're not entirely evil. They're never entirely evil. It's usually some tragic story that they were killed before they could live their lives or by rogue samurais or had some brutal death where they were raped and they come back that way. So it's treated in a totally different way, whereas this seems to be very much the female vampire Although the prize that they're ch- chasing isn't a beautiful woman, it's this sacred reindeer that can bring them luck and bring them money. So they're not even really chasing sex. It's interesting. I don't know whether they did this to make this more, because it does have a Western sensibility in this sense. I think that's why it did so well, because there are certain things are recognizable in that this is a horror, the evil succubus woman. and Things like that, it's not entirely out there. So it's interesting how they mix those two things together. She's just horny, though. Can we talk about it? It's not that she misses her husband. She's horny. She gets this lovely wedding night. He goes to fucking sleep. And then you have those other men that are sharing the room with them. And then there's that, that moment of catching the eye that she has. And then it's, it is, it's, it's coming out of her sense of horniness. And one wonders... How, you know, we were talking about this being perhaps molded to fit for more international audience. But if looking at just the notion, nature of Sami society, as depicted in this, you know, the idea of the semi-nomadic existence that is so keen about following the reindeer herds. You can possibly draw the connection that, you know, she not only is she, she's representing essentially pulling the man away from that kind of work. You know, he's meant to be out there with the reindeer. She wants him to remain home. And so there's maybe that kind of push-pull in their society. But yeah, I think it really is just punishing her for having some sort of sexual desire. A society of no women either, apparently, because you barely see any women in this. Though you do see that badass older woman that has the most lackadaisical knife throw in the entire movie. I loved that woman. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I think it's very pointed, pun intended, that a woman is the one that injures her later on when she is in her reindeer form that no man seems to be able to get her 
but the woman is the one that does the damage. And then, God, when she's licking the blood off yeah, of her shoulder, amazing. wow, that's both very hot and twisted at the same time, which is the way I love it. At least until the very end, in which she is fatally penetrated by her husband. That's an interesting thing, too, that they're using iron, because that's usually something I associate more with Western mythology as far as iron is the thing that can you know drive out the beast and 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 hurt any sort of supernatural thing i'm not sure why iron has such power but that they are forging these weapons out of iron i was like oh okay that's a nice crossover too and yeah i totally agree with you cat as far as there are enough western things in here that i can latch on to this and i can see why this became the international hit that it did she laughs at them she laughs at the men and they're very upset about that scene where the two go so she's just laughing she's just laughing they're totally defeated by that they can't take it and then you get that wonderful scene in the church which i'm still ambiguous exactly if that's meant to represent a christian church because the subtitling in that scene it's it doesn't feel like traditional christian hymns but but from the look of, of the priest he appears to be very sort of nordic protestant and you know the way he's dressed and everything but taken as if that is a Christian church, just the the sort of what she represents within it, that element of the pagan that's lurking in the community, drawing the eye and the attention of the men and thus the attention away from God. I, I love that particular scene, even though I'm sure the motivations for it were not as positively pagan as I myself am. I see a scene like that. I'm like, hell yeah, let's abandon this and let's go out into the wild. But, you know. Sure, that wasn't the motivation of Blomberry. <laughs> it's really interesting because if you think about not just in Sami culture, but the occupation of Protestantism in Northern Europe anyway, and obviously in recent years we've seen a huge kickback to that and a return to Nordic paganism and things as a point of restoration and revolution. And a lot of outright have latched onto that as well <laughs> over there. Yeah, unfortunately, it goes hand in hand with a lot of racism. That's one of the things I've ran into even when I was trying to research you know, the background of the Sami and a bad rabbit hole of racism of, well, they're not really European, they're Asian. It's like, uh, okay, I'm not going down this route. In terms of the Sami culture, because that was part of the normalization was to try and make them Christian, which is always the way. And so the presence of the church, again, it's ambiguous. Was this Because the church isn't really presented as the salvation, which is interesting. If you think about the Western canon, it's the church that generally becomes the salvation or the sign of the cross or the pure man or the man of God. And it doesn't really have that angle. It's the husband that, that kills, but not in this religious sense. It's, it's not all backed up with this sort of gothic dualism. So it's interesting that you see her in that context because the church was the oppressor, basically. It's fascinating. The way she's framed in that church scene is just great. I love how the focus is on her face. And we should probably say, or I should probably say that she's gorgeous. She is absolutely a gorgeous woman. And just that she stands out so much and then just has that way that she's framed in there and she's looking up everybody else is looking down i love it from the beginning though she's like one of the guys so she's in, involved in the reindeer race and you get the idea she could give the guys a run for their money she's very physical she's very 
outdoorsy and apparently Kuzmanen was very much like that in real life. She was very outdoorsy. She loved to swim and hike. And so you see her at the beginning, she has this almost masculine energy there in that she is very comfortable being in this male world. And obviously thinks when she gets married, then she gets to have a sex life and realizes that the men are all useless. <laughs> Blame her, really, going to shame men. What are you going to do about it? Even the way that she preys upon the men, it's the the emasculation of it all. The laughter that she has before she breaks it down. It's like, yeah, I got you. <laughs> there's, there's, again, I have a thing in my note of don't have sex with the reindeer lady. <laughs> I mean, if, if you were tracking a, a, a reindeer and all of a sudden she spontaneously turned into a woman, I don't think my next move would be like, oh, it's time to have sex. Yeah, but men always fall for that. Mermaids, when they're going to learn, they're always... The mermaids, they lure them away, the sirens, the succubus. If people don't take away anything else from this podcast, take away this gentleman. Don't have sex with the reindeer lady. I do want to say it's very ahead of its time in terms of, if you think about the vampire canon in American and then British films. So you rarely see female vampires. You've got Dracula's daughter. You've got like a few vampire if. That's like a hag character that's totally in its own universe. But the more Carmina adapted ones, you've got Blood and Roses and Crypt of the Vampire. But generally, it was 52. There weren't that many horror films being made in the in Western Europe or America anyway. It was all post-war stuff. So you got the universal stuff before that. When it comes to Hammer, it becomes very much about Christopher Lee, the sexual predator. And you don't really get these female villains come along. There's the occasional one. There's the Gorgon and the Reptile. Like Hammer do a few. But nobody really realises there's a potency in that until the early 70s. And then you get the vampire lovers in 1970 and the door, just every single lesbian vampire just <laughs> spews out in a wave. And so this seems miles ahead of that because you can say well on one hand these films reinforce that women should be punished but they had a lot of the time they had to put that in there had to be a punishment but the real bones of the film is that you are enjoying the villainous parts of the woman the seductive parts they just stick the little moral on the end oh yeah this is totally a moral message I, I never felt as a young woman growing up that I wanted to be on Team Van Helsing. I always wanted to. <laughs> They're appealing. And so I think there's a, there is an empowering aspect to films really use monstrous femininity. It, a lot of the time it also goes against these, I guess, really conformative male desire or male fantasy because it more often than not reflects male fear. And there's a power in that. A lot of the films I focus on are about that, what I call the chthonic feminine, which I stole from Camille Paglia. But this idea of the woman from the underworld is abject. It's not of patriarchy. So it's almost not important that they get punished at the end. It's the fact that they get to wreak havoc for a small while. That is the appeal to me. And... Nobody was doing this in 1952. It was a whole 70s thing. 
nobody was doing this. In Finland, you get two films that come out this year. The other one, The Witch, or The Witch Returns, very different in tone and style. You basically got this house full of people, and they accidentally dig up this witch. Now, that film has got full nudity in it, 52. And this witch is taunting them, and she's seducing them. Parts of it are like weird comedy. It's an amazing film. But again, it's like this very chthonic feminine energy that the men are simultaneously drawn to but terrified of. They're like terrified of this witch. And that film, I did some research around it, just complete coincidence that that was made the same year as The White Reindeer. There's just two, and then nothing really. It just, it's like you were onto something here. You were years before Hammer, years before Eurocult. This becomes a massive thing 18 years later. But I guess in 52, we're still in the haste code. This sort of thing would be very dangerous to American censors. <laughs> I wonder, because, you know, I often think about this, you know, would this film be made in America during this time period? And there's on, on some level, perhaps, because there's nothing in here that's on the surface necessarily would violate the Hays Code, especially since with the ending, you know, all the guilty people have been punished and everything like that. But I could certainly see, you know, going back to the depiction of Christianity in this, another filmmaker leaning very heavy into the God aspect, very heavy into the Christianity of it all. And one of the things that came to mind certainly was Bergman's uh, Virgin Spring, which would come a few years after this, which also has that sort of dip into the pagan background of the culture. But then, boom, he immediately abandons it, and it goes all very Christian at the end of it all, which I still think the best part of pagan... Ah, but does it, though? Because it's like this point, and not to go into Bergman, but Bergman was was another director that I compared this to because... I even wrote a whole article on this, Bergman's quote-unquote folk horror, in that you have films like The Hour of the Wolf and and Seventh Seal and Virgin Spring, and they are very much horror, not commercial genre, but they're using folklore. Bergman was very inspired by that. But Virgin Spring, you get this retribution, but at what cost? It doesn't satisfy anything. You get that ending, and it's just so bleak. It's just like... Bergman Bergman was no fan of the church. His dad was a Protestant pastor. And that's where I was thinking that, at least in terms of the, obviously, the the complicated relationship, as you said, that Bergman had with the church. But it felt, when I watched Virgin Spring, that you have the embrace of the pagan when he goes and seeks his vengeance. He puts on the leather. He puts... Even just standing at the uh, or sitting at his table, it feels very, very much evocative of certain kind of Norse traditions and Norse iconography. And then when the vengeance is gone, here comes the guilt, which in Bergman language, guilt seems very much wrapped up in Christianity. And again, I think that's the influence of his father on that. So that's what I was saying, at least in terms of Christianity reasserting it. In the pagan, it would have ended with, yeah, we got our vengeance. Fuck yeah. I was thinking about what you were saying. El Goro earlier about the desirability of the white reindeer in the the culture and just that that helps her out so much that people are hesitant to to shoot the reindeer because the reindeer is is something that's seen as being very lucky and will bring wealth and all this so it's very fascinating that she becomes that that 
that totem, that thing that people want. So rather than going after her to, to murder her, they're going after her to capture her. And that becomes like her way of getting her victims, which is great that, you know, one of her first victims after that amazing first transformation scene, which I absolutely love. And I love that, you know, I think you pointed this out in your commentary, Kat, that she's lit from underneath so much to give her that sinister thing, but it's all motivated by the, the campfire, you know, the actual light source. So she's got that light source that's bringing that demonic look on her face. And when she jumps over the fire and transforms into the reindeer, and then when the other people see her, it's like, no, no, don't, don't shoot that reindeer. Let's go out and capture. Her. And the first victim that she has is a guy who's been tracking her because he wants this white reindeer. And I love that that's a desire that then becomes a sexual desire. It's a desire almost for money and for status and things. And then it becomes a sexual desire suddenly. It's not the typical succubus in that sense. It's very much its own way. The, the female vampire would usually appear as a beautiful woman and seduced that way but here we have a reindeer it's completely different that's not why people are attracted to the reindeer and i i find that fascinating it's yeah i can't think of anything that i've seen that uses that usually the the shape shift they will attract the victim out of shape-shifting character and then they will transform into the wolf or the killer moth or whatever it is the vampire type they will appear as this innocent maiden and she does it back to front which is interesting there was one thing i noticed this time around which i didn't pick up on the commentary i really kicked myself for it is when you first see the husband on his sleigh a black cat crosses his path and i didn't notice it when i did the i'm like why didn't i notice this and it's is that deliberate is that again like relating to our superstitions this little black cat just runs across so there's this such a mixing of certain traditions and so i know reindeer sacrifice was part of sami paganism but then the white reindeer is like the sacred is like the special animal because they are so rare apparently they have 150 different words for reindeer as well which is amazing i love that but it is like this very sacred, like all life is around these reindeer. And it was that kept the culture together because in Norway and Sweden and Finland, they didn't want them speaking Sami language. They didn't want these customs here. And so this nomadic life, these reindeer became like the core of keeping that culture together because that's how it survived. There are other ways that that sami people bear hunting fishing and all these things but the reindeer is like the special one it's like an honor it's passed down from family to family and that was how this culture was really kept together and i find that fascinating because all these different states did everything they could to really quash that to turn people to christianity to get rid of their language to get rid of the cultural beliefs and the folklore and all of that so it was the reindeer that it kept that together. But then you have a Finnish film with Finnish language, so it's not really, it's like, and I love the film, but it is appropriating some of that. Not really doing it, not really doing it true to form. But I do think there is a genuine fascination there from both director and writer. I do think 
I don't think it is damn the Sami, these two. You, there, there's more to it. There's a definite curiosity to, to explore this. And I don't even think that the white reindeer, Parit, is evil. She just makes a mistake. She just, you know, perhaps the, the message is don't go and see the shaman if he's pissed. You know, (laughs) because it's not. There's another lesson for you, folks. Can you turn me into this evil thing so I can? She just wants to have sex. She wants to have a good time with her husband who keeps falling asleep because he's so tired. And she doesn't go there and say, I want to kill men. I want to. No, she just wants to get laid. And maybe it's something to do with the fact that the shaman is there with a bottle of whiskey or whatever knocking it back with his little bone or whatever it is on the drum and it just goes tits up but then there's also that suggestion that there's something inherently magic about her you know with her own origins of her mother coming out of nowhere but she doesn't know this though she doesn't know but it's it's the notion also that even the shaman seemed afraid when the drum started going out almost as if her inherent magic was being awakened by his pissing around with his shamanism. And so it creates this very sort of tragic story that, as you say, what's her motivation? She wants to, she wants to, her husband to be around more often so they can have sex, which is not a terrible motivation. I think that's a very positive motivation. She doesn't want to be running around with all these other guys. (laughs) And then even later she has that, she has that whole moment, which again, I think in another filmmaker, they would have, definitely layered on the Christianity there, but where she goes back to the altar and is begging to be removed from this curse, that she doesn't want this anymore. But what happens? She gets transformed right back into the reindeer. So it's a very tragic story. Either she or the shaman or both of them together have awakened something. I mean, awakened something for her, but the shaman seems to be punished. I mean, when she goes back and, what is it? He's all completely iced over. That whole little shack that he's in is is iced over. I'm like, wow. Okay, it seems like the gods are angry. The, his drum, which is you know his spiritual connection to that world, because again, the very very surface level exploration I did of Sami shamanism, the drum is a very very central part of that. That's how you get into the proper mind space for this sort of religious experiences through that drumming. So to see it shattered like that, it's his connection to the spiritual world has been broken. So he is being punished in some way, but it, and it feels like they unleash something they could not control, whether it was inherent to her, whether it was coming from him. I don't have enough of a grounding within this sort of culture to make any sort of informed things. I can only watch the movie and draw from there. You just need to lay off the sauce, really. That's my take. Everybody was drinking pretty good, but then again, if you're living in that cold environment. Now everyone's dead now. Everyone's dead because of you. Shamans are interesting. I do love a bit of shamanism, and they generally don't appear much in horror films because they are like the conduit to the spiritual world. They are the go-between. But then you could say, didn't the gods or the spirits allow this transformation then? It's that because the shaman doesn't really have magical powers. They're not like the magus or, or even the witch. What they are is like a, a spiritual medium between the two worlds. Like a doorway, they're able to speak to the spirits. 
So one example would be somebody's very ill or they're depressed and they go to the shaman and the shaman says, you're possessed by the spirits. So the shaman will go and speak to the spirits and say, hey, can you leave this person alone? They don't really have magical, they don't do spells in that way or they don't really have magical powers. It's it's interesting that it's still granted in some way by this guy banging on his drum absolutely hammered and him there eye of newt yes new, new. <laughs> like the witchy thing as well it's like they can't resist it was also interesting to see how that was depicted again not having a much of a background in in sami shamanism but having a little bit more at least in traditional norse depictions of magic and the idea that in traditional norse culture Magic was viewed as being very feminine. And so when a man would practice magic, he would inherently take on more feminine or mixed gender characteristics. And seeing that played out within the shaman character with his higher pitched voice and the contrast he had towards the other men in the camp. And they were so seemed to be fitting in with that sort of tradition as well. I don't know if that was informed by actual Sami shamanistic practice or that perhaps is coming from more of the Nordic influence in Finland in this. It's definitely Nordic. I think just in, in the case of shamans globally, the shaman is generally taken is the wise person they are the enlightened wise person who hold this responsibility what you have in this is basically a pisshead who when you first see him you think is this a woman is this a guy pretending to be a woman because it's the hag they sometimes like to do that oh we need a really ugly witch let's get a, a guy to play it then donald sutherland does it in castle of the living dead it caught me off guard again, and I've done the commentary for God, like God knows how many times I've seen this film. It caught me off guard yet again. I think is this the because it is doing all that I have new do, and and you think is this the, the testicles <laughs> of ten reindeer? That isn't a shaman though. The shaman are like the enlightened spiritual leaders, the wise people. So that seems I don't know offensive to shamans, really. Like you said, it's, it's probably more of a Nordic influence because they have a shaman basically acting as a witch which is interesting yeah but it is that whole thing like is this a fairy tale witch when they when she first comes to the hut and he's in there like mike said hanging out with his goat <laughs> sitting over his little cauldron i think it's wonderful i am a pagan i never get offended by any of this stuff because it just fascinates me how it crops up in film and stuff I just love to see it here. I know Christians don't take that view with their representations. They tend to get very upset about it. I love the Wicker Man and stuff like that. I love all that. But that you mean the Nicolas Cage film, I'm sure. No, I don't love that one. Actually, I do love the B scene. I'll give it that. Yeah, that, the, that movie has the best highlight reel one ever. One of the best scenes in all... I'm, what I'm hearing is we need to do a remake of The White Reindeer with Nicolas Cage. Oh, please oh. don't suggest. <laughs> as the shaman, I mean, he did talk about his acting style being neo-shamanistic, so I think if we cast him as the shaman... It's almost like his, his role in that Rob Zombie trailer, oh, you know, where he's Fu Manchu. Yes, yeah, I could see that. <laughs> he really described himself. <laughs> Something along those lines. I forget the exact term he did, but he referred to his acting in 
shamanistic terms. We need to do that soon because he's going to retire pretty soon from what I understand. And I say, I say this as somebody who's come around to being a fan of Nicolas Cage, because you know what, at the end of the day, he's an eccentric guy doing his own thing. As long as he's not hurting anybody, go be you, Nicolas Cage. He's fantastic. I won't enjoy everything you do, but I do enjoy quite a bit of the things you do. (laughs) I love him. He is so totally mad. But my great friend, the late, great Mike McPadden. See, I loved Mandy, but Mike McPadden wrote a whole article on it, and it's still online called Mandy is a Meme, where he described Nicolas Cage's human trauma. (laughs) And as much as I love that film, I love Mike's review even more, even though I was a complete opposite opinion of mine. (laughs) But now, now, whenever I see Nicolas Cage, I just think of that. Nicolas Cage's human trauma. this, but no, I don't want him anywhere near the white reindeer. It'd be a bloody CGI reindeer now as well. Whereas here they're grappling with actual reindeer. That bit where she pulls the reindeer down by its horns is oh antlers, my god. Yeah. yeah, antlers, sorry. You think and it's actually her. I kept looking at and it's not a devil or anything. She wrestles this bloody thing to the ground. It looks really mean <laughs> the way they do it as well because they sort of twist their heads and make them submit. But yeah, they're really getting now. You'd get CGI reindeer; it wouldn't be as good. I love after they find out, and we cut to her in the cabin, and she is looking at herself in the mirror, and she's got those teeth going on in the reflection. But it seems like her reflection is not her. She's separated from herself, which is great. And I love how her husband comes in and he's just like, oh, I'm going to go hunt this witch or, you know, like hunt down this reindeer. And I'm like, and she puts her hand up to her neck. I just, oh, it's so good. And I love the way that he's using, sorry, I'm just like spewing. I love the way that they're using the light through the window and have the shadow on the floor. And you've got the one transformation scene where you see the shadow of her and she almost looks like Max Shrek going across. And then you get another where you see her walk across that shadow on the ground. Oh, it's there is so a good. lot of expressionism in, in the horror scene. Oh, yeah. God, which yes. I love. I just, I just love that anytime it comes up in anything. And if you want to talk about amazing lighting, the scene with between her and I believe it was Oka Lindemann, who play, who's credited as Forest Ranger, but basically the man who encountered her survived and then realizes around the campfire when he hears her laugh, it's like, oh, that's her. And just the way that that's lit with the fire and the black background and just the stark contrast between the two. And he has this fiery brand that he's running through. And they, t- anytime anybody's dealing with an open flame like that, I, I just get impressed. It goes back to thing from another world where you just set a guy on fire and see what happens. But there was, there was that element of danger there. And again, as you were speaking of Kat, the expression, expressionism quality that comes out of that. Oh, it's amazing. Good stuff. You're right, Kat. It is a shame that Blumberg did not direct more movies and more horror movies. And just because he's got such an eye, such an eye. And to have his wife be his muse and his co-creator, what a team. Well, I could not find his other directed work when I tried. I know it wasn't in genre. It was more to do with drama but it just seems a real shame because it is such a beautiful just in terms of horror the way it meshes gothic and folk horror the way that it's shot the way that 
sort of juxtaposes all these contrasting things like expressionism, and then you have these almost naturalism, and then you have the gothic and the folk horror, and all this stuff that goes on in it in an hour and what seven minutes. <laughs> There's so much packed into it, and it's so rich, and it's like, why? This is just seems really unfair. All right, we're going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show right after these brief messages. Starring Charlie Weber, Madison Bailey and John Voigt, The Painter is available to buy on digital today. An ex-CIA operative is put in danger when a mysterious woman from his past resurfaces. Now targeted by a relentless rogue black ops program, he must rely on skills he left behind in a high-stakes game of survival. The Painter. Get it on Voodoo now. Rated R from Paramount Pictures. Helen 123 is racing underground at 70 miles an hour. The train and its passengers are under the control of four armed, desperate men. Anybody who tries to rise is going to get shot. What happens next will keep you on the edge of your seat. <laughs> the taking of Pelham 123. You've got to see it. You'll never forget it. The taking of Pelham 123. Rated R. Under 17. Not admitted without parent. That's right. We're doing something completely different next week as we go back to redo an old episode of the show. We are revisiting the taking of Pelham 123. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Kat and El Goro. So, El Goro, what is the latest with you, sir? Well, at the time that this is going to be released, I'll be probably deep into the episodes that my patrons have selected. The first part of the year is always turned over to the people who support me on Patreon booking the episodes, which is always great for me because it's <laughs> there's a tendency when I book to just kind of go down where my mind is at. So ha expanding it out to other people is always fun. But yeah, we have some fun things lined up, including one of the very first episodes I'll be doing of the year, which is very much in the folk horror tradition, because one of my listeners requested I take a look at Henda's Fen, which came, came out of that same Severin folk horror, horror box set. That Severin folk horror box set. So annoying because there's just so many great movies. It's just, it's like that Woodland Tales documentary where I'm just there, like writing down all the, oh, I gotta watch this. I got, now I gotta see this. I was in it and I came away from that documentary with a list of films. I still haven't watched all the movies from the documentary, but I will, I have at least watched all the films in the box set, which is always a trouble with me because I have, I have a physical library and so much of my Patreon content is devoted towards watching the movies I haven't watched that are in my physical library. I refer to it as my great unwatched pile. And there's so more, so many, and it's, it's still well over a hundred titles that I haven't watched yet in my library. I mean, sometimes I curse Kayla Janice's name because even with her book, I, I was writing down so many titles and I'm still working through that list. Of too, House so. of Psychotic Women or? Yes. Yeah. Darn you, Kayla. Well, now she has a new edition of it. So I got to pick up the newer edition. Yeah, that's got a whole new bunch of films added. I got that off Fab Press, though, just a little. If you get the special edition, I don't know if it's sold out, but you get a free CD where she reads the yellow wallpaper, which is... Oh, beautiful. Wow. Yeah, it's really cool. <laughs> How dare you, Kayla, doing quality content in the horror sphere? <laughs> How dare you? I still need to pick up this, the actual new Severn box set that they did around House of Psychotic Women. So lots to watch. But yes, that's what I've been doing. <laughs> and Kat, how about you? What's going on with you? 
I'm just feeling ashamed because I have barely touched my seven folk horror set because I never get time. I saw Alison's birthday this year, actually. That was a discovery. I hadn't seen that one. That was really good. What am I doing, though? There's not a lot I can announce. The Coffin Joe set that I co-produced is out this month. I got slightly delayed, but... I'm so looking forward to that. talking of big box sets. That's a kind of a huge undertaking. I'm going to produce 15 extras for that video extras, and you've just got six discs. I can't even remember how many films, but all been restored. That's coming out. I've just got my head. By the time this comes out, I'll be waiting for my first mark on my first essay for my master's. <laughs> yeah, so I can listen back to that and listen back to this and think of the headier days where I wasn't sweating over that mark so much. And yeah, my Patreon still chipping away at that, doing videos. Hopefully I've done some more episodes of To the Devil a Daughter, my podcast on the Catholic feminine by the time this comes out, but you never know. Eyes bigger than my belly, as usual. Speaking of people that are doing quality contributions to the horror genre, you're doing amazing work, and I'm look, definitely looking forward to that Coffin Joe box set. I was disappointed when it got delayed, but I'm kind of okay with it because it put it outside of the Christmas rush, so... I can spend money on other people before dropping the money on Coffin Joe. Yeah, there was a hell of a lot of work that went into that set because obviously the way the films had been available before were not in great versions. It was great to have them. I still have the whole old Anchor Bay set. It was wonderful to have them, but not the great rest, not great restorations. And it was a bit of a journey to get them restored, but I've seen the restorations and holy fuck. Well, considering some of the some of the ones, I think it was what the hostel of I forget Naked the full pleasures. name. Yeah, that's one. That's, that's the one. It's just I can't wait for people to see them because it's like Jesus Christ. I'm looking forward to watching that with an actual translation because when I watched it, it didn't even have subtitles. I was just like, okay, let's let's see what Jose has for me. What I always remember one scene from that that I'm pretty sure I had it with the hard coded. It might have been on the Anchor base set or, and there were just people going. Everybody, name. for some reason, I have that subtitle burned into. Was that in uh, Awakening of the Beast? No, it's or? in Awakening of the Beast. It might be in Waking. For some reason, I just have that burned into my head anytime I think of Coffin Joe. <laughs> Everybody, <laughs> the naked. fun that arises from that world. <laughs> There's a lot of naked people and and all sorts of things. And that I just, I'm really excited. And this has been a long time in the works. Like I've personally, I've known about this set for at least four years. I didn't know I was going to be brought on as a producer then. It's been a whole journey. Can't wait for the bros to come out and complain about it. <laughs> Crashed blacks or something. Well, they should go back and watch it how we used to have to watch it again with grainy quality and no subtitles. I'm just looking forward to be able to see exactly, what's going on. Exactly, right? And I'll still hold on to my old Coffin Joe box set because it's got a cool coffin design and it looks cool on my shelf but i'm looking forward to better restorations stop yeah without these big chunky hard-coded bloody subs and stuff yeah it's like we can have nostalgia over that but i wouldn't change this era for the world to be honest 
Well, thank you so much, folks, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, check out some of the other shows that I work on. They're all available at weirdingwaymedia.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. Finland, Finland, Finland. The country where I want to be pony trekking or camping or just watching TV. Finland, Finland, Finland. It's the country for me. You're so near to Russia. So far from Japan. Quite a long way from Cairo. Lots of miles from Vietnam. Finland, Finland, Finland The country where I want to be Eating breakfast or dinner Or snack lunch in the hall Finland, Finland, Finland Finland has it all You're so sadly neglected And often ignored up for second to Belgium when going abroad Finland, Finland, Finland The country where I quite want to be The mountains so lofty The treetops so tall Finland, Finland, Finland Finland has it all Oh, together, Finland files! Finland, Finland, Finland the country where I quite want to be Your mountains so lofty Your treetops so tall Finland, Finland, Finland Finland has it all Finland has it all Thank you.